I've preached about reproductive justice once before here at UUCF. It was seven years ago in 2013. At that time, the year 2011 had been the single worst year for access to abortion since Roe v. Wade, with 92 abortion restrictions passed in state legislatures. 2012 had followed suit as the second worst year for abortion rights since 1973, with 43 abortion-restricting provisions enacted at the state level. That year, I also led a six-session class here at UUCF on reproductive justice. So in the wake of all that, I've actually been thinking for a while now that I've just didn't have much left to say about a woman's right to choose. But in the wake of renewed efforts to limit access to abortion, it turns out I do. Let me also acknowledge here at the top that abortion rights also directly impact many transgender men as well as some gender non-binary folks who can get pregnant. The current events that prompted me to begin planning this sermon was yet another series of state laws attempting to limit access to abortion, which disproportionately impact women who are poor and people of color. And all of this is about to reach an inflection point, as Jen mentioned, likely sometime next week when the United States Supreme Court will release its ruling on June Medical Services versus Russo. This case involves the constitutionality of a Louisiana state law requiring doctors performing abortions to have admission privileges at a state-authorized hospital within 30 miles of the abortion clinic. The effect of this law would mean there was only one single doctor in the entire state of Louisiana who would be able to legally perform abortions. There'd be a similar ripple effect in other states in which the state legislatures have a majority of representatives favoring abortion restrictions. And maybe this feels um, particularly close to home for me as someone who was a minister for seven years in the state of Louisiana. This year's case is very similar to the 2016 case, Whole Woman's Health versus Hellerstadt, in which the Supreme Court ruled five to three that a similar state law in Texas was placing an undue burden on women seeking an abortion. Nevertheless, here we are, two years later, again waiting to see whether or not the United States Supreme Court, the highest court in the land, will rule in favor or against reproductive justice. Um, briefly about that term reproductive justice that Jen mentioned as well, it was coined by a Black Women's Caucus in Chicago in 1994 to connect reproductive rights with the larger social justice movement as an attempt to bridge this tendentious split between the pro-life and pro-choice camps. Reproductive justice seeks to frame the debate as the right to have children, the right to not have children, and the right to parent the children we have in safe and healthy environments. I want to give you a slightly more expansive definition, and to do that, let me share my screen with you. So a definition of reproductive justice, when all people in communities have so economic, social, political power, and the resources to make healthy decisions. Uh, so about bodies, about sexuality, about reproduction, and again, it's about the right to have children, the right to not have children, and the right to parent the children we do have in safe and healthy environments. Relatedly, it may be helpful to say just a little bit more about what is and isn't happening in the United States today in regard to reproductive justice. 
And part of why it's important to have open, transparent conversations about reproductive justice is that abortion is a fairly common and ordinary procedure. Approximately three out of 10 American women who are currently age 47 or older have had one or more abortions. I think when we're having these conversations, that's an important truth to have in the room. Looking forward, uh, approximately one in four American women who are currently 47 years or younger are expected to have one or more abortions in the future. So that, that's a notable decrease in abortions over time. The projected rates still include 25% of American women. Here's another interesting statistic. Almost half of American pregnancies are unintended, 45%. At least part of the reason for these accidental pregnancies is that although contraception has improved over the decades, contraception methods are not 100% reliable. And let's just say in the heat of the moment, not everyone consistently remembers to follow all the recommendations in the instruction manual. If you'll indulge me in just a little sex ed, it is underappreciated that if 100 sexually active couples used no contraception for a year, researchers would expect about 85 of them to get pregnant. If the same 100 couples used condoms perfectly, two would still get pregnant. Using condoms perfectly, two pregnancies. With typical condom use, 18 of them would get pregnant. Perfect diaphragm use, six pregnancies per 100 couple. Typical use, 12. A perfect pill or patch or ring use results in only 0.3 pregnancies in 100, but typical use results in nine pregnancies per 100 couples over a year. And this isn't even getting into the related struggle around increasing ease of access to contraception. But instead of getting further into that, I'd like to move us into the most interesting discovery for me personally that I made while researching this sermon. And that is a new book titled The Turnaway Study, 10 Years, 1,000 Women, and the Consequences of Either Having or Being Denied an Abortion. It's, this is sort of a natural study. They went in and um, just studied women who, because of a confluence of circumstances, either uh, were having or were being turned away. It's by Diana Green Foster, a professor at the University of San Francisco. And if this sermon leaves you curious to learn more, I highly recommend Dr. Foster's book. It's really beautifully woven between personal stories and data. In contrast to the misinformation, the speculation, the personal anecdotes often circulated in regard to reproductive justice, Dr. Foster's research is grounded in rigorous social scientific methodology. Her team conducted 8,000 interviews of nearly 1,000 women over eight years. And although her book was published only a few weeks ago, some of you may have seen the headlines a few years ago about the biggest finding in their study that was published in the prestigious medical journey, uh, journal, JAMA Psychiatry. So JAMA is the Journal of the American Medical Association. This is the psychiatry um, volume of it. Her team conducted 8,000 interviews of nearly, um, sorry, what the Turnaway Study's extensive research found is that for the vast majority of women, abortion does not harm women's mental health. That's the sort of big banner headline that was super clear from the data. And that 95% of women who have had abortions felt their decision was right for them. Uh, when women were asked why did they choose to get an abortion, about two-thirds of women didn't list one reason, they listed more than one. 
for instance, the number one reason, reason women gave was financial. They don't think they have enough money to raise either a child or an additional child. The second most frequent reason, 36% was timing. It wasn't the right time for a baby. The third most common reason, 31% was men. They were in a relationship that was too toxic, too fragile, or too abusive to support either a child or another child. Another common reason, 29%, is they wanted an abortion to be able to take care of the children they already had. And 20% of women said that having a new baby would derail life plans or career goals. The takeaway here is that by and large, women make thoughtful, well-considered decisions about whether to have an abortion. That's one reason why our banner here at UUCF, right there in the yellow line in the middle, includes the line that women have agency over their bodies. Or to quote Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the notorious RBG, the second um, female Supreme Court justice to ever be appointed, um, she said legalized access to abortion is about a woman's autonomous charge of her full life's course. That word autonomous, uh, that Greek word nomos means law. So it's ruling yourself, figuring out what the right law is for you, a woman's autonomous charge of her full life's course. Or I can back up and quote Sandra Day O'Connor, the first woman to serve on the Supreme Court. She was appointed in 1981. This country was founded in 1776. So think about what that means. I'm sure some of you have. Uh, for the first 205 years of this country's existence, the Supreme Court was all male. Of course, the presidency remains all male. And here, for now, and here's what Justice O'Connor, the first Supreme Court justice in United States history who could actually be pregnant, here's what she said in the 1992 case, Planned Parenthood versus Casey. She said, the liberty of the woman is at stake in a sense unique to the human condition and so unique to the law. The mother who carries a child to full term is subject to anxieties, to physical constraints, to a pain that only she must bear. Her suffering is too intimate, too personal for the state to insist upon its own vision of the woman's role. And despite the trope that a woman's decision about abortion is always difficult, the data from the Turnaway study shows that that's actually only true about 50% of the time. For about half of women seeking abortion, it is a straightforward, easy decision. For about half, it is difficult. That a woman makes this decision easily, however, make no mistake, that does not mean she makes it lightly. Instead, the choice may be clear when she considers her options and life circumstances. Now, all that being said, I suspect there are at least a few of you listening to this sermon who identify as pro-life. So let me just say a few words along those lines. From the conversations I've um, had over the years, I understand that for many of you who identify as pro-life, it's less about being anti-choice and more about being pro-fetal rights. And when I speak about reproductive justice in UU circles, which I've done periodically over the years, usually at least one or two people follow up with me afterwards, one-on-one, -on -one, and ask me, can I be UU and pro-life? Let me be clear that the answer is definitely yes, if you are willing to be part of this big tent that is Unitarian Universalism. And that um, response is similar to our situation here in the U.S. generally, as the bioethicist Katie Watson has written. The abortion debate often seems to boil down to a debate about vulnerability. 
Who or what is in more need of protection, fetuses or women? Watson writes that for her, the vulnerable thing in need of protection that we should focus on instead of that false dichotomy, that the vulnerable thing in need of protection is pluralism. The idea that Americans who vigorously disagree about gender, family, sex, religion, endless other topics, that we can all flourish in the same country if we're willing to respect pluralism. She says, I'm not asking you to like abortion. I'm asking you to like pluralism. I'm asking you to acknowledge that your feeling, opinion, belief, conviction about the moral status of embryos and fetuses cannot be proven to the level required to force it on others through force of law. In the United States, we can't force a neighbor to end a pregnancy that we don't think she should continue, and we can't force a neighbor to continue a pregnancy that we don't think um, she should end. Along those lines, as I move to my conclusion, I want to take the risk of bringing up a reminder about the other end of the spectrum from Dr. Watson's stirring call for pluralism, and that is something that happened in 2009, and I'll share my screen with you just one more time. In 2009, Dr. George Tiller was killed by an anti-abortion extremist while serving as an usher at his Lutheran church in Kansas. I bring up this tragedy because of the reason that Dr. Tiller gave for why he was willing to serve as a physician at one of only three abortion clinics nationwide at that time, which provided late termination of pregnancy. The reason was two words, a motto emblazoned on the wall of his Wichita clinic, in which he also often wore as a button on his lapel. Those two simple words were trust women. That's why Dr. Tiller did what he did. He trusted the autonomy, the experience, the choice of women. He trusted that the vast preponderance of women seeking his help were acting in good faith and doing the best they could given their life circumstances, which include the gender wage gap, systemic sexism, lack of universal child care, and so much more. Trusting women is a vital step in dismantling patriarchy and building a more fair and equitable world, a world with peace, liberty, and justice, not merely for some, not merely for men, but a world with peace, liberty, and justice for all, a world in which we all get free. Trust women. That can get us a long way toward genuinely, authentically building a new way.